Greetings. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor podcast. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today, I'm in conversation with Orlando Liomu, the Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director of the Standard Media Group in Kenya. Enjoy this truly fascinating conversation. Orlando, welcome to In Conversation with Trevor and welcome to Zimbabwe. Thank you, Trevor. It's not your first time to be in Zimbabwe, hey? No, it's actually my second time. Second time. Yeah. Somebody tells me you've created time to go and play some golf in Victoria Falls. How was that? Oh, it was uh, the best of both worlds. Uh, I mean, the sun is way hotter down there. It is, yeah. Uh, beautiful natural setting on the golf course. Uh, my golf struggled. Uh, that's a story for another day. But at the end of the day, I, I had a fantastic time. This is your first time in Vic Falls, eh? Very first time. Mm -hmm. And uh, did you love it? I loved the, You know, the town looks small and sleepy, but inviting at the same time. Yeah. Uh, the experience uh, at the Vic Falls was just surreal. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything close to that in Kenya mm. in terms of the sheer enormity of the falls. It was really beautiful. Fantastic. Yeah. We've enjoyed having you um, at Alpha Media Holdings. And we thought, you know, let's have uh, this conversation so that you share with our guests who are yeah. all over the world uh, what the media space is like in, uh, in, in Kenya. So you are, like I say, the group chief executive officer and managing director of the Standard Group. Yes. You were appointed in 2018. So you've yes. been on the hot seat for, uh, for what, four, four years? years? Yeah, four years. Has Actually, seat, four years this month. Oh, wow. Has the seat been hot? Where, where have the challenges been? Um, let's just say that, uh, depending on the season, I just like the weather. <laughs> Some seasons it's really hot, mm -hmm. uh, some seasons things are calm. Um, I was appointed, uh, actually I took over an acting capacity in 2017. Mm. And uh, I don't know that you're aware, 2017 is when we had our elections. Yes. So the previous CEO left just immediately after the first elections had been annulled. And I was taking over at a point where Ariran was in the offing and there was all this political tension. I mean, um, fine, I'd worked in a media house, but I'd never run a media house. Yeah. And here you are and you're told, okay, um, let me just backpedal a bit. It was on my birthday <laughs> <laughs> when I received that phone call from yeah. the chairman of the board. Yeah. And he said, uh, hi, Orlando, uh, can you talk? And I said, yes. Uh, I was taking an evening stroll, you know, it's my birthday, you're reflecting on life and everything like that. And they said, um, the board has met, uh, so-and-so has tendered his resignation and the board has decided you take over an acting capacity. Uh, do you agree? Now, who says not? <laughs> <laughs> who says not to yeah, that? Yeah. yeah. And so actually, effectively, I did nine months in an acting capacity and now four years mm. substantively. Uh, it was hot in 2017. Yeah. Really I can hot. Imagine. Um, you know, I, I wasn't used to getting calls and, you know, people complaining about this and why you're covering this thing that way. You know, it was really a steep learning curve. Mm. Um, but one that I, when I look back, I say, you know, it, it was, it was necessary. Mm. Because you, yeah. prior to that, um, yeah. Orlando, you had been in the bank office, as it were. Yeah. You were chief operating officer and the chief financial officer, and and then you get to be right up up front. How was that change? What surprised you most about being in the hot seat? Um, you see, having been a COO and FD, there's nothing about the business that I didn't understand. Right, right. Operationally, you know. I knew where all the buttons were, press this one, you get this result. But I wasn't prepared for that outward-facing mm. responsibility. Uh, you see, you can only experience that by doing it. Yeah. And so the internal transition was pretty easy. Right. But the external side wasn't so easy because I needed to get to know, so who do I call in case there's a problem? You know, who do I go to? If... 
things are getting hot, how do I handle them? Uh, luckily, I accepted my own shortcomings very quickly. Mm. I called a friend of mine who's, I would say, more senior in the industry. I said, can we have a cup of coffee? And he said, yeah, sure. And I said, uh, just so that you know, all I need is mentorship. Mm. You are more experienced. You've been in this place longer. And I believe you can assist me navigate this minefield in these early days. Uh, and I think I benefited a lot from that. That's a good, that's a good thing to do. I mean, yeah. to realize I've got these, these, these shortcomings. Yeah. Let me go and find somebody to help me. Exactly. In terms of the, the public facing yeah. uh, challenges, what did you find uh, to be the most, uh, you know, uh, tricky issue to, to, to navigate? Uh, to be honest, dealing with government officials. Aha. Uh -huh. You know, sounds so, familiar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know where they got my number. Yeah, I thought my number was a very <laughs> well kept secret. But yes, uh, all overnight you start receiving phone calls. You know, in fact, I remember this one case where an irate cabinet secretary called me, and you know, for almost fifteen minutes didn't allow me to talk, wow. and then he hung up. And I thought, oh, Orlando, maybe he'll think you hung up on him. Could you please call, call him back? So it's, uh, you know, courtesy. And I call and I say, why are you calling me back? And that's a point I realized, oh, he hung up on me. <laughs> and, uh, but I had to learn to deal with that. Mm. Uh, I have a very practical and logical approach to things. Mm. Uh, and I always tell myself, is it about me? Is it about the office? Mm. First. Yeah. If it's about the office, then I don't take it personally. Yeah. Even if you shout, you do. So that's interesting that you can do that. It's, yeah. it's personal. It's about the office. Yeah. If I was not occupying this office, yeah. one, I would not receive the, the phone calls. Two, I will not be the punching bag. So because it comes with the territory, ah. then you have to learn to deal with it. Mm. Uh, and that's what I did. I just said, this is the school fees I'll pay to understand how to run a media yeah. house. Yeah. 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 And d d describe for us... Um, uh, Orlando, the the media terrain in Kenya. What what does it look like? Who are the players and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah. The media terrain in Kenya is very vibrant. Uh, starting with the you know the mainstream structured organizations, which are quite a number uh, in both uh, broadcast and print space. Uh, of course, you have the what I would loosely call the unstructured. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a whole vibrant community of bloggers. <laughs> who also feel that they can make a buck in that space and uh, try and also just, uh, you know, do their, what I would call, publishing, though mm. not regulated at the same standards we would. So when it comes to the structured side, you have the big media organizations. You know, you have, uh, of course, the standard uh, group, PLC. You have the Nation Media Group. You have uh, Royal Media. You have uh, Media Max. All these are multimedia companies, you know, TV, radio, uh, newspaper. Mm. Uh, and, and the Nation and, and the Standard Media Group are all on the, on the uh, Kenyan Stock Exchange, yes. am I right? Yes, the two are the only listed ones, okay. um, the Nation Media Group and ourselves. Uh, the rest are private, if mm -hmm. I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And you have a lot of radio stations, I think over 170. Radio stations. Radio stations. Wow. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people are watching right now all over the continent in Zimbabwe who are saying, wow, 170 yeah, radio stations. 170, I think TV stations are slightly less than 100. Uh, it's a very vibrant space and that makes it very 100 competitive. 100 TV stations. Yeah, just slightly less. Wow. It makes it very competitive, actually. Wow. If you want to make money in that market, you really have to be good. Wow. Yeah, it's very competitive. So break down for us the... Um, standard media group operations what what spaces are you into um i'll start of course with our heritage which is the newspaper right uh, we actually have the oldest running newspaper in kenya uh, first established in 1902 hmm. november so it's a product that's about 120 years old of course, not in its current uh, format. There have been various iterations mm. and uh, designs over the time. Mm. Uh, so we are in the print business, uh, currently running two publications, The Standard and The Nairobian. Uh, we had uh, a few others, but during COVID, we decided to put them aside, uh, run them digitally. And then after uh, many years of being only print-centric, we moved into TV. 
So we do have uh, four TV stations. Right. Uh, KTN was the first independent uh, TV station. Before that, we had the state broadcaster as the only one with a TV station. Uh, of course, today, the four, uh, we have uh, a 24-hour news channel, KTN News. Uh, you can, I'm sure, get it even here in Zimbabwe yeah. because we stream it uh, 24 hours. Uh, the first one of its kind in Kenya. Uh, and I believe it did revolutionize how media houses look at news as content. And agribusiness TV. Mm -hmm. uh, this one is really for impact. Right. Because uh, in Africa and in Kenya in particular, a lot of families have a connection with farming or, you know, the supply chain that is uh, connected to farming. And we felt that if we created a platform that can help farmers get better uh, for their produce, share information that's important. Uh, in our analysis, we figured out that most of the time what is lacking is information mm. or the quality of information mm. they're getting. Uh, you see, if people don't understand how to get into sustainable practices, then it affects the output at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. So how, how big is that channel, the, the farming channel? It's quite niche. Yeah. Uh, it's, of course, uh, uh, I mean, you can access it uh, throughout the country. Is it 24-7 or is it? Yeah, it's also 24-7. Okay. Yes, it's 24-7. Mm -hmm. Of course, we try and uh, create content or produce content that's relevant. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, during COVID, we couldn't do that because, you see, you need to go to the farms, yes. you need to sit to the farmers. So we ran uh, thin on the content, but now we are back out because things have been opened up and we are right. able now to go and just keep talking to the farmers, producing content that's relevant. Because you have to understand, in some of these cases, we are not the experts, we are just a media house. Mm. So we need to talk to the experts. Yeah. And I believe a farmer will believe a fellow farmer. <laughs> yes. Than Rather than a journalist. journalist. Yes. Yeah, because these journalists, what do they know about farming? farming. Yeah. That's so that's how we are looking at it. Yeah. So you've got the the, the, the national one, then the farming uh, yeah, channel, the, the news, okay, and a general entertainment, right. two general entertainment, okay, yeah. and radio stations. Radio stations, uh, we had three. We've just launched a fourth one. Wow. Um, I know it's been busy season, uh, though it's uh, one of those catch twenty two situations because mm. we launched this a lot of these products uh, in twenty eighteen, in anticipation of a growth. Uh, unfortunately, COVID happened. Yeah. And uh, I know, Trevor, you understand that investments uh, come with costs. Of course. Uh, the revenues catch up later. So when you have a two-year disruption like we did in COVID, it does really put a lot of pressure uh, on the business. But with hindsight, then it also sort of puts us on a springboard. Mm. Because looking at how print has suffered during COVID then the broadcast assets actually do look like a timely mm. investment, notwithstanding the difficulties that has, uh, COVID uh, brought to us. Uh, so we have four radio stations. One is Swahili Mass Market. Uh, is that the biggest? Yeah, that's Swahili. the biggest. Mm. Uh, we have uh, Spice FM, which is an English radio. Uh, it would appeal to someone like you, the music and everything, very right. mature conversation. Right. Uh, we have Vibes Radio. Uh, for the younger generation. For the younger Southland. generations. Uh, more skewed towards the reggae, dancehall kind of uh -huh. music. Uh, you know, reggae has a revolutionary aspect to it. And uh, when you listen to people talking, you, it does connect with a certain populace. And uh, we have one vernacular, which we've just launched. Uh, Kenya is big on vernacular stations, mm. so we mm. also felt we needed to be in that space. Mm. You, yeah. you also have an internet business, am I right? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, the way we look at digital today, Trevor, uh, you see, a few years ago, we were trying to come up with a digital strategy as a media house. And uh, I sat down and we had a business strategy and we're about to embark on a digital strategy. And it did bother me because I've never seen any organization with two strategies. <laughs> <laughs> and I went back to the board and I said, if we're going to have two separate strategies, then it means our first strategy mm. is probably not good enough. Which then meant we had to go back to the drawing table because... If digital becomes a way of doing business, then it means your strategy 
has to recognize that. Mm. And so we've come out of a new phase of, uh, you know, strategy formulation where now digital takes a core space, space yeah, uh, where we are saying it's digital first. Right. So we are no longer looking at digital as a separate business line. We are looking at it as the core. The core. Because everything is going there. And mm. you have to understand what's happening. Uh, probably this uh, show is watched more online mm. than on any other platform. Mm. Maybe the biggest uh, consumer base is on mobile. Mm. Maybe it's on tablet. So when you accept and acknowledge that digital is the way of life, then it stops being a separate existence from mm. the rest of the business. Mm. But in the past, we used to look at digital as a separate uh, business. Uh, we do have the biggest uh, local digital platform. Right. Uh, only two, uh, Facebook and Google are ahead of us in Kenya. Really? So we've really made uh, what I'll call uh, major strides in the digital space as a media house. Mm. Um, initially for us, digital was just a way of, uh, you know, a channel of sharing content with our consumers. Today we don't look at it that way. Uh, I personally want to look at technology and digital as an enabler of new business models. So it's no longer a threat. If you think of it as a threat, then you'll miss out on the opportunities. Uh -huh. You have to look at it as the enabler of future opportunities. Right. Yeah. And, and has the newsroom embraced that, that it's an opportunity rather than a threat? I would say there's a, there's a binary outcome to uh -huh. that. In the sense that the younger people, they are born with technology at their fingertips. They embrace it even before you tell them. Here the digital is, natives uh, is their exactly, core. Exactly, yeah. the digital natives. Uh, the older people is a bit of a struggle yeah. because uh, some of them look at it as a threat. I call them the dinosaurs. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, but by and large, it's been embraced. Uh, in some cases, I would not say it's resistance. Mm. It's maybe challenges of adapting. Mm. You know, that yeah. can come out as resistance, yes. but in reality, people are struggling to just get into that space. Mm. You, you know, you find somebody is a senior editor or whatever, but if you go into the social media space, they're not there. They're not there. They're not there. Then how are they going to address the needs of the consumer in that space? When they don't experience the space. And you don't even know what people are consuming, yeah. how it's packaged. Yeah. You know, there's lots of conversations uh, I've had to learn. Uh, I have an accounting background, let me first say that. And when I got into the media space, I remember I started investing in understanding digital impact on media. Mm. Since I think now it's about eight years, all the trainings I attended were on digital media. Because I said there's nothing I can learn in my core area of training. As an accountant. Uh, as an accountant that would add value to the business. I think I'd gotten all the training, all the learnings I could. Not that learning ends, but in terms of if you look at what would help the business more, I thought I needed to equip myself with what I didn't have. Yeah. And so I'm a passionate, uh, I would say, proponent of just pushing the digital agenda to the next level. Mm. Because look at two industries I like comparing, music and photography. For those who did not look at it as an opportunity, they're out of business. They're out of business. They're dead. They're dead. Anyone who wanted to remain, resist. to resist, they no longer have a business. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with us. Mm. We have to look at it as an opportunity, not mm. as a threat. As Nyaradzo, we strive to continuously bring convenience to our clients. Nyaradzo Group is proud to introduce Sawi a new virtual chatbot assistant on WhatsApp. With Sawi, you are now able to interact with us from the comfort of your home and can be assisted anytime via WhatsApp. With life assurance products, diaspora products, applying and assessing your policy, payment platforms, claims information, and any other queries concerning payments, policy information, or products and services, Simply WhatsApp Sawi on plus two six three seven one two double nine two eight nine two or register and start interacting and receiving notifications from Sawi on WhatsApp.
Now, join in and experience a new level of convenience 24 hours a day with Saudi. When you came in um, uh, Orlando uh, in 2018, yeah. the standard media group had been recording losses. Yeah. You came in, you've turned things around. Talk to me briefly about what it is that you think you've done differently to, to put the business onto, onto a profit path. Um, a good question. Uh, have, having a finance background helps on some things. Uh, but also it means you have to equip yourselves with yeah. the other side of the business. Uh, the standard group, in my opinion, always had enormous uh, potential. Uh, a multimedia company yeah. uh, without a multinational orientation. You know, I've worked in a multinational and things have to be brought down from above, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. That can be very constraining. But here you have an organization where management and the board, but largely management, has the ability to chart the future of the business. That gives it enormous potential. Uh, so when I got in, I stripped it apart and I said, okay, I have good people in editorial, I have good people in commercial, and I looked at the structure and I said, there's a lot of wastage everywhere. And in my first nine months of acting, I actually never looked at myself as an acting CEO. I sat down and I said, you know, even if somebody else comes, mm -hmm. I want it to be a relay. They need to find an organization that's already, you know, going. Yeah. And you pass the baton. I could have sat down and said, let me wait for my confirmation. Then I'll do these things. So the first thing I went and told the board, the external environment for media is moving at a very high pace. Basically, the external velocity of change was way faster than our own internal velocity of change. At that point, we only had two TV stations, one radio station, and the two newspapers, and I could see what was happening. So I presented the case to them, and I said, I believe that if we go on an aggressive cost cutting, uh, we didn't lay people off. Yeah. It was just about taking care of waste. Right. Uh, we can save some money, mm. take this money, put it in product expansion right. because I strongly believe that the revenue base had to expand. Wow. And they agreed. Uh, to my surprise, uh, you know, you're here two, three months in and the board said, okay. So we went into an aggressive uh, cost-cutting program. I set a very aggressive profit target. I actually said, I want us to achieve double the profit the company has ever achieved as the highest. Hmm. And everyone thought I was crazy. And I committed to the board with that. And uh, I told people, you know, you don't set targets you can meet. You set targets. That will stretch you. That will stretch you. Strangely, we fell um, um, 3 million Kenya shillings short mm -hmm. of our target, uh, which was, uh, we had said, 600 million shillings. Uh, loosely at uh, dollar translation, that would be 6 million. 6 million U.S. U.S. Uh, the highest previous figure was about $3 million. Mm. So I guess that I was putting my neck too out with the board to set such lofty uh, targets. So that showed people that it can be done. Yeah. And as according to the script, we took that and invested now in the additional radios, mm. in the additional TV. Uh, we expanded our digital uh, footprint. And we were actually saying 2019 was supposed to be slightly lower because, of course, when you invest, you expect costs yeah. to come ahead. And we're looking at 2020, 2021 as our takeoff years. Yeah, right. Uh, you know what happened. <laughs> COVID. COVID struck in 2019. Mm. Uh, of course, that had a serious impact for media, mm. not just so ourselves. Talk to me about yeah. that impact, uh, the COVID impact on the, on the business. Wow. I've never seen anything like that, Trevor. Uh, I tell my friends, no education, no training, no experience ever prepared me for that mm. in leadership. The first month we saw a 75% drop in revenues. Wow. When the government declared the pandemic and went into lockdown, 75% drop in revenue. And I'm not really a socialist, but I believe that you do not have to let people go fast. 
you try everything to avoid to avoid of people. people. Uh, Africans, we are very uh, we live in communities. So when you let one person go, chances are seven more have been affected. Yeah, uh, and we've tried our best. Um, the only people we had to let go before was when we restructured our newsroom. And that was purely a functional mm. thing. Mm. But for COVID, no. So we saw significant drop in revenues. We saw, uh, I mean, we got really bad losses in 2019. Uh, we were able to bring that down in 2020. Mm. And last year, we almost broke even. It was just marginal. I think half a So recovering from the two-year yeah, yeah, impact of the COVID. Yeah, we, we recovered, I would say, pretty spectacularly. I was also surprised because to almost break even after two years and with this array of new mm. products uh, that have costs but are still building their yeah. revenues gradually. So in a nutshell, for me, that has probably been the most memorable point of my career mm. you know there's nothing that prepares you for such crisis no. uh, and there are a lot of lessons to be learned but one that i picked up is actually you can run a business differently mm. that was mm. the number one i think that's I, what covid has taught all of us isn't yeah, exactly it? that um there's things that we were used to doing which uh we could change but we would not have changed without covid isn't it is, is that what you In found fact, out there was a, Hundred percent. There was a lot of resistance. You know, you tell people, let's do this differently. <laughs> when COVID came and said, we must we do must it, they're like, okay, okay. Yeah. They're like, then why didn't we do it from the word go? So the, here is my experience. I found that, um, pri like you, we've been talking digital first. Yeah. But we found that there was a resistance from the advertiser. The advertiser wanted to see the adverts on paper. Mm -hmm. There was a resistance from the newsroom. The journalists wanted to see their stories in, in print. Mm -hmm. There was resistance from the reader uh, who didn't want to go digital first. COVID has changed that. Has that been your experience too? Partially. Yeah. Uh, it, on our end, a lot of advertisers actually are the ones pushing for the digital interest interest because they have big budgets and they're like our oh, people on the digital space kenya has a really developed yeah, yeah. uh digital economy if i could put it that way uh the other two we share <laughs> the journalists yeah, and, the yeah, readers. And, and the readers uh and the other thing about the digital fast travel and this is partly what i believe in it's not empirical so i would say it's anecdotal yeah is that uh i don't think translating media value into digital spaces, if I could say one for one, mm. is how the business model will be. All right. I don't believe that. One for one, I mean, is you take the newspaper as it is, then you offer it in a digital format and expect to, send yeah. the, to make the same amount of money. I don't believe that. Yeah. Uh, I've looked at this. I've looked at other industries. I've looked at spaces where there was technological disruption. The business models have to change. Yeah. Because consumer habits shift. Right. So for us, uh, the struggle right now is to try and redefine our role, to try and re redefine our value, and to find space for ourselves in that value chain, mm. in the new digital space. That's huge. So our digital first uh, direction starts with the consumer. We are trying to remain relevant with the consumer. Yeah. That's where the digital first is. Unfortunately, that's why I say it's my opinion. I don't think that's where the revenue is going to come from. It's going to come from necessarily. Mm. And if, even when it does come, I see it as being fractional. Mm. It will be a fraction of what you're used to. In the where do you think day. the revenue is going to come from in the future? <laughs> I think the revenue, my bet is on transactional value. Uh-huh. You see, today media is a mass, sort of like a buffet, you know. Yeah. Everyone come, you must eat what is there. Uh, we are moving into a generation and a market that's more of a la carte. Mm. People want, you know, people want to consume what they want, wow. when they want, how they want it. Mm. Uh, if you look at video, YouTube has done that, video on demand. Today, children are watching more YouTube than the books of the world. Yeah. Uh, that will disrupt our revenues. P today, people are reading Twitter, Instagram. By the time 
you know, the sun sets, everyone is informed. Mm. How do you package a newspaper for this generation? Mm. You see, it goes beyond the what happened. Mm. And so how do you satisfy? So my bet is if you find a way of appealing to individuals to come and have their, for lack of a better phrase, their a la carte, mm. and they pay you for that. Do you, do you think the newspaper as a business, is going to survive? As a business, that's a good question. I think the newspaper will survive out of maybe tradition, out of habit, but very many will collapse because they won't have sustainable business models. Mm. That's how I see it. Mm. Uh, so for you, television, radio would be, are, are going to be the business for the future and not, and not, and not print uh, natu naturally. Yeah, indeed, Trevor. And that's why the, the aggressive change in strategy direction. That's why the launch of three radios and two TVs in a space of two years. Because we say that if we want to have the print business, then we need a successful broadcast business. Mm -hmm. The way I see our print business is that uh, how I've packaged it in my head, I need or we need successful business models to run quality journalism. Right. I think in the past it's been the reverse. Quality journalism has driven revenues. Right has driven the success of the business, but especially back in Kenya, I'm seeing that reversing. That's interesting. If the business is to rely on journalism, then the threat of the extension of the newspaper will be faster. Yeah. But if we find ways of using the same assets to generate value, mm. and this value then can be reinvested in quality journalism, then the paper will survive. Mm. My sense is that quality journalism will survive. Yeah. Uh, it's where you put that content. So the thing is going to be content. Is the exactly. content good enough? Yeah. Uh, you don't have to copy it with uh, commoditized uh, Twitter and Facebook. Is that yeah. your sense? Too? Yeah, that's my sense. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I feel strongly that to get quality journalism, then what can the business do? Exactly. So that then even if the paper in its touch and smell format does not exist, the content will always be there. Mm. That quality content, mm. and that's why I was calling it transactional value, mm. because then you want to read only what you want. Yeah, let's, uh, let's move now, yeah. um, uh, Orlando, to the regulatory environment. Yeah. How how is it? How do you? Uh, I mean, in Zimbabwe, it's very uh, restrictive in many in many in, in many terms. I mean, radio and television, uh, almost uh, the, the state dominates uh, radio. The state demo, dom dominates uh, television. What's the situation with the regulatory environment in Kenya? For media organizations in Kenya, I would say the regulatory environment is really positive. That's good. By and large. Uh, I mean, they say give credit where it's due. Absolutely. Uh, I think years of a democratic space have also helped um, the media get certain liberties that were not there in the past. Uh, that said, uh, we are seeing new, I would say, modern ways of trying to put pressure. Uh, I mean, media and government will never be friends, <laughs> friends uh, <laughs> yeah. no matter how liberal. They will never be permanent friends. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So we've seen sometimes, you know, uh, government uh, attempt to try and just put pressure on certain areas. Uh, for us, I've noticed that it's more commercial than yeah. anything. Okay. You have to remember that in Kenya, government is one of the biggest spenders in any sector. And uh, that's the case also in the media space, because you have the parastatals, the state universities, uh, government offices. So do they try and put uh, pressures via withdrawing advertising, for instance? Yes, for instance. Uh, which reminds me of my first few months as a CEO acting. And I took over and the government was not giving us any advertising because uh, we were seen to be pushing the agenda of the opposition. But you see, our tagline is that Kenya's bold newspaper. Mm. Now, when you're bold, you say things as they are. Uh, and the editorial guys thrive on that, you know, punching you know, above, below, whatever. The stories have to be very bold. And because of that, we did rub a few people the wrong way, and they withdrew advertising. Wow. Uh, the downside of that is that your revenues suffer. The upside of that is that even if you call me, I have nothing to lose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you look at it that way. But by and large, our space, I would say, is really open. Uh, I think there's a lot of freedom uh, in terms of media conversation. So you, you've already indicated that you, you, you've had tensions with the government and uh, you have calls, people calling you, complaining about, uh, you know, some stories. Talk to me about your the editorial position of uh, the standard media group. How would you describe your editorial positioning? Um, first, let's start with the policy. Yeah. We have a very robust editorial policy. Uh, we have an editorial committee of the board. Uh, and... It's very clear in terms of which direction we should take. Uh, the editorial team has a lot of independence. Uh, I am actually not supposed to interfere with them, uh, and the exceptions to that, mm -hmm. where matters of national security, yeah. of national importance are concerned, because, you see, we can take our responsibility to report too far and cause chaos. Yeah. So, And we've seen it in other countries. So there are certain... Uh, clear limitations where I must get involved on a consultancy basis. Mm, mm. Sort of like they must consult with me and say, this is the story, how do we treat it? Mm -hmm. uh, but by and large, I don't get involved. People get surprised when I say, I see the headlines like <laughs> when you wake up and they can't believe People it. don't believe that. No, in fact, I remember once uh, I told that to one of our uh, cabinet secretaries. I say, uh, cabinet secretary, I don't I, read the paper. I see it I like see, you. And yeah. then he asked me, so who's in charge? And I took that a bit offensively because it means you That's don't right. understand media. Yeah. Being in charge doesn't mean you dictate the headlines. In fact, I once told people, if a media CEO can dictate the headlines, that's the most dangerous you, you, person. You, you raise a very important point. And a number of people, um, I mean, when I was running and owning the Mail and Garden in South Africa and here, a lot of people say, also, oh, you're not doing your job if you don't read the story. You say, no, I am the chairman or I am the CEO. Yeah. It's the editor-in-chief. It's the journalist who do that. I read the newspaper just like you in the morning. And yeah. afterwards, I can go and complain. Is that your sense, too? Yes. And even when you try and explain, people don't understand. And I actually said, okay, maybe there's a need to educate uh, you know, a lot of outsiders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like government. You have three arms of government. You have parliament, you have uh, the executive, you know, and you have the judiciary. And they're supposed to operate, operate independently. And so when a government official doesn't understand <laughs> that independence, yet in government it's supposed to be very strong, where the judiciary should not be influenced by the executive. Mm. You know, where the legislature is supposed to do their thing, uh, almost independent of the executive influence. Um, so I've seen challenges where people don't understand when I say uh, I'm not in charge. But in terms of our policy, so it starts with the policy. Then there's a direction which is uh, entrenched in our vision. We want to be the voice of society. Mm. You see, if you want to be the voice of society, then it means you have to speak to the issues affecting society. That puts us in a situation where we've always been seen to be sometimes leaning in a certain direction, mm. but it's how political landscape operates. You know, if you have a government and you have an opposition, and maybe the opposition is agitating for something, and you cover the opposition, then to the government it will mm. look like you are leaning yeah, towards the opposition. Yeah, but yeah. all you're doing is covering what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So we are not really aligned uh, to either side. We actually like taking a very independent approach and say things as they are. Mm. Uh, Don't you get um, um, uh, boxed like, you know, happens in Zimbabwe, you know, uh, Trevor Nube is the chairman of Alpha Media Holdings. He's got certain views. Therefore, the newspapers should have the similar views. You've got powerful shareholders, uh, the Moy family and, and people that are aligned to Moy. And people might think that you, you ought to be aligned to that. Do you get that kind of, uh, um, treatment? Yes. I've even had situations where people sort of condemn you know, the group and its brands. Because of the shareholders. Because of that. Uh, and to be fair to them, I've never worked under any better shareholders. They don't interfere with anything. Mm. The editorial direction is largely a company affair. Um, 
I mean, once in a while, we even do get our shareholders into trouble. <laughs> some of the things that uh, the editorial people put out. But you see, when you invest in a business, then you want the business to be mm. the best it can be. Mm. And uh, I feel that under the circumstances, we've actually been able to be, a, what I would say, a vibrant media house with very little, if any, influence from the shareholders that this is the direction. That is good, good business, isn't it? That's good business. Yeah. Sensible business. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about the number of people that you employ as a, as a, as a company. Uh, and, and your, your revenues. Uh, where are you sitting at the moment? How many people do you employ and profit uh, and revenue? Directly we employ about 900. Wow. Uh, indirectly maybe another 400. Um, at the peak, uh, before COVID, uh, uh, let me put it in context yeah. before and after Afterwards. COVID. Uh, before COVID, we were doing almost, uh, uh, I would say, uh, 5 billion Kenya shillings. Mm. That will mean about $50 million mm-hmm. per year. Uh, is it 50? Yeah, I think it's 50. And uh, right now we are doing about uh, 65 to 70% of that. Mm-hmm. Uh not too bad, but we were looking at growing from the five uh, upwards. So right. now we are in recovery mode. Right. Yeah. But uh, that's the kind of scale. So in terms of headcount, uh, 900 directly, mm. 400 plus indirectly. By indirectly, I mean, we have all correspondents and all these people who are not directly employed by the company. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's a big uh, operation. So let me take you to... Um um, you you started off as uh, perhaps one, your first job as a bookkeeper <laughs> in in a friend's shop. Uh, your journey has been one from humble beginnings. Yeah. Where were you born? Where did you go to school? Um, if you could share that with us, ah, definitely. I was born in uh, Nakuru town, which is now it has just achieved city status in Kenya. Uh, so I would say a uh, middle income family you know not too uh, no i wouldn't say we are very well off mm. but we're also not on the other side just a normal middle income family uh, your I, father was a farmer yes he was a specialist in horticulture mm-hmm. agriculture space right so i grew up actually in farms most of my life right right uh, i like telling people i'm a farm boy <laughs> i'm a village boy <laughs> and so we moved around a bit right uh, i think between my ages of Two and six, mm. we actually lived in Zambia. Oh, really? Yeah, he got a job to run some farm in uh, outskirts of Lusaka. I was still a kid, but I remember uh, remotely some of those moments. And then we went back to Kenya. So most of my education, actually all by the time in Zambia, has been in Kenya. Mm. Which schools? Um, there's, uh, for my primary school, I went to a school called Molo Academy. It was a boarding school. You have to understand that when you have a parent who moves a lot, getting reliable schools everywhere you went became a challenge. So I went to boarding very early at age 10. Wow. And uh, some people say, it wasn't that. I said, okay, for all its uh, drawbacks, mm. I think it created very early independence. You learn to do things for mm. yourself at a mm. very young age. Mm. Uh, and I always look at that as a, a plus. Mm. Uh, fine, you miss out the warmth of the parents every day and all that. But you make up for resilience that you pick along the way. And then I performed relatively well in my uh, primary results or exams. So I went to Moy High School, Kabara, mm-hmm. which then was one of the, still is one of the really top uh, schools. I remember those were the years you needed to get top marks to make it into certain mm-hmm. schools. And if you made it into those schools, then you knew you had a chance in life. Right. Things have changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I went to Moyasko Kabrak where I finished my O levels. At that time, Kenya didn't have uh, A levels. Mm. We had scrapped that. So we were at the 844. So you did eight years of primary, eight years of uh, secondary school, and four years of university. Wow, okay. Yes. I wasn't aware of that. Interesting. Yes, uh, they had done away with the 7422. Uh, Nyaradzo, we strive to continuously bring convenience to our clients. Nyaradzo Group is proud to introduce Sawi, a new virtual chatbot assistant on WhatsApp. 
With Sawi, you are now able to interact with us from the comfort of your home and can be assisted anytime via WhatsApp. With life assurance products, diaspora products, applying and assessing your policy, payment platforms, claims information, and any other queries concerning payments, policy information, or products and services. Simply WhatsApp Sawi on plus two six three seven one two double nine two eight nine two or register and start interacting and receiving notifications from Sawi on WhatsApp. Now join in and experience a new level of convenience twenty four hours a day with Sawi. Which university did you go to? Um, I went to University of Nairobi, uh, where I did my Bachelor of Commerce, and uh, also doubled up by doing chartered accountancy. Uh, I know your father wanted to be you to be an engineer or a mechanic yes. or something of that sort, or a doctor. Yeah, at first he wanted me to be a doctor. Yeah, uh, I couldn't stand the sight of <laughs> what doctors do. <laughs> Even had a family friend, and you'd send me to the clinic to see how it's working. I think that's what actually put me on. Mm. And I realized that was not for me, but he, he had seen a bright young man, and I think he wanted to extract that and say, I have an engineer in my house. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't for me. And it's interesting, even uh, as a young person, as a child, the things that I was sure about, I, I knew what I wanted to be. I knew what, what I did not want to be. So I was not so keen on being an engineer. Because Where did the influence to do the degree that you did come from? First, I wanted to be a chief accountant because my friend's father was a chief accountant and the name sounded fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I had no clue what that was. Fascinating the things that influence us, exactly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. As a kid. But interestingly, and that's how fate plays out, is that when I was in my secondary school and to honor my dad's wishes, I selected engineering as my first choice. Then I saw this other thing that looked very nice called Bachelor of Commerce. I said, this sounds good. Let me just put it. But since I was so sure I was going to get yeah. engineering anyway. And uh, so I put there a Bachelor of Commerce, and uh, time passes, and you get admitted. Uh, the process is very long and tedious. I think I missed the cutoff by one point. Uh, and I know where that one point went to. Interesting. And so the first day I report to Bachelor of Commerce, and then I realized, oh, so this is what actually I came to do. <laughs> then I realized it was more about marketing, accounting, and also it's as if my words were a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh -huh. So I ended up doing what I'd wanted to do as a kid, but almost by accident, by mm. chance. Mm. Or should I say serendipity? Yeah, accident, serendipity, indeed. Yeah, sort of accidental luck. And looking back, I have no regrets. I think I would have really struggled in the engineering space. I'm more of a creative, more of a... Um, I just love solving everyday problems. Mm. I'm not sure if I would have done <laughs> in that other space. So I went to University of Nairobi, did my Bachelor of Commerce, uh, became a chartered accountant in the process. Many years later, I focused on my career mm. uh, as uh, in the accountancy and finance space. Then I uh, went back to school in 2013 to do my MBA. At that point, I felt... That you did this in Strathmore. You know? Yeah, Strathmore in Nairobi. Nairobi. Uh, so basically, all my schooling uh, has been in Kenya. Wow. Uh, just that uh, the MBA with Strathmore had a connection with the University of Navarra in Spain, the ESA business school. Right. So there's a week you have to go there right. and, you know, the faculty there takes you through. So that's my only, I would say, external element of schooling, but everything else was uh, in, Kenya. Uh, in Kenya. In Kenya. Yeah. And, and you worked for Total Kenya um, uh, and Gulf Energy, which gave you regional experience in, in Tanzania and Uganda, am I right? Yes, but as I say, don't forget your humble beginnings. Uh, <laughs> yes. My first job out of university, um, my friend had a small printing shop. Uh, and I, I don't like being idle, to be honest. It's always been a part of me. And I say, can I come help keep your books? Uh, you don't have to pay me much. Uh, even if you don't have, then don't pay me, but at least I'll keep myself busy. 
And that's how I started. Just mm. every day I would wake up, uh, you know, uh, bought my nice secondhand shirts, pressed my nice uh, jacket uh, with a tie, and you'd think I was being paid a lot of money. <laughs> but I how had much to look were you paid? Do you remember? He was paying me two thousand bob. That's like twenty dollars. Wow! It was more like just to keep me busy, to keep you going, because he his business was small. I didn't want to put a burden on his uh, finances. But it's interesting that what I set up for him is what he later built upon when his business grew. Because I remember telling him, "You are starting in business, but you must keep your records. You mm. must get your books audited because one day you go to the Very bank important. and they'll ask you for these things." And he thanked me many years later and said, "You know what? Your advice." Medicine. His business has grown, has it? Yeah, he's gr it's grown. He was able to go to the bank, get you know the funding he needed for expansion. Mm. But it's because he had mm. started doing what I told him. Mm. So from there is when uh, I got one more job, uh, which used to pay me about fifty dollars, but I would spend all of it on fare. Again, it was better than staying at home. Mm. Uh, it was a lady who had a couple of clients who needed bookkeeping. So my first job experience was really humble and I would say very basic. Then that's when the total experience came. And by then I promised myself if I get a good job, I have to be the best mm. at it. And so multinational experience, rapid growth, um, got to the top of the, I would say the department. They wanted to send me to France on expatriation because I'd been put on the uh, the, what they call the high potential lists. Uh, again, family reasons stopped me. I wasn't sure I wanted to get out. My father had retired, mm -hmm. he was getting older. Uh, I just felt I needed to be home. Right. And secondly, it was around the time there was a change of regime in Kenya. Uh, the environment, the business environment was looking vibrant. Mm -hmm. And I felt there were more opportunities in growing economy at home than in an expatriation situation out there. Mm -hmm. Because when you miss on this, you know, guys, I said there's a deal here. Do you want in? If you're out there, you, miss you won't get that. it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I felt, uh, the family aspect and also just I thought I would thrive better mm. back at home. Mm. And uh, I I'm happy that a lot of these momentous decisions, I took, you know, those split point where you have a right and a left. Where do I go? Where do I go? A lot of them have turned out well because not always that will be the case. Mm. So after years in total, I felt to give up the expatriation meant I would not have grown. I exited, went to Gulf. It was a startup. Total taught me structure, mm. gave me a broader view, taught me discipline. Gulf was a startup. Mm -hmm. So I took what I had from Total, but it taught me the hassle. It taught me how you survive in a startup, mm. how you wake up every day to build something. And I look back, the combination of the two is really coming into good use in my current role today. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. That, that nothing that happens to us is ever a mistake. No. It's, it's all intended to where you're going. Yeah, in the words of Steve, Steve Jobs, connect the dot backwards and it all makes sense. Mm. That's how I see it. Because then I'm in a company that's not part of a multinational, which means I have to understand mm. structures, systems, and how to make that happen. But again, this is a company that needs to grow. So I tap into my you know, startup experience where there's an entrepreneurial spirit that's required. You can't be a CEO of a company that's seeking growth if you don't have an appreciation for how to build things, how to conceptualize, uh, you know, where the business should go, how to see opportunities. For for me, the less the what I'm hearing you say, and which I really like, is when you start with your friend, your attitude. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be sitting around doing nothing. I do, yeah. and I'm going to do the best I can with the opportunity that has been presented for me. That opens doors for you, doesn't it? 100%. You see, when we graduated, and sometimes we think we are unfortunate. Yes. I'll tell you why. Uh, my first lesson in life, when I was in my third year, 
something happened. Anyway, I don't want to go into the details, but I performed dismally in my exams. For whatever reason. I have them, I don't want to put them on air. And uh, it was a huge shock. Uh, I, I'd never failed anything in my entire life. So it was a big setback for me. And what happened that when we were doing our fourth year and all the audit firms came hiring, I was bypassed just because of that. Yet my record was stellar throughout. So I never went to the audit firms. Hmm. And I felt that was a failure point. You know, all your friends... And that particular moment is the worst thing to happen to you. So you wake up, you graduate, your friends already have jobs, you are doing bookkeeping for 20 bucks, they are already getting car loans, you know. And for, for a year, I remember telling myself, don't compare yourself. You know your value, you know your worth. And that's why when I got the opportunity, I said, when I get this opportunity, I'll prove it to myself that I am good. And by so doing, then whoever has given me the opportunity will see my worth. I wasn't trying to prove to them. I was actually doing for myself. I I like what you're saying. Don't compare yourself to anybody. But much more importantly, prove it to yourself and not the other person. Those are huge lessons for me. Those are important ones. And what you said is right. The doors opened. Yeah. The promotions yeah. came. Um, they didn't come because I said it. They came because I put in the hours. Yes. You know, working 14, 16 hour days, seven days a week was normal. Yeah. And, you know, I was watching this uh, video uh, on one of the social, I think it was on Instagram, and this gentleman, I can't remember his name, was saying, you know, if you do not work hard when you're not paid enough, you'll never reach a stage where you are paid more than you work for. That's, that's huge. That's true. That's deep. If you don't work hard when you're not, you know, when you're earning little and you say, no, I'm paid little, let me work little. There'll never come a day when you'll be paid more than the work you do. That's deep. I mean, that you've got that moment, you are yeah. in that moment, yeah. do the best that you can. And that was my philosophy. The, and this philosophy was driven also by what my mother once told me. She said, actually told us, because she had several children, she said, uh, my children, the only advice I can give you, build a career. Now, the way I see her advice is whether you're in business or you are in corporate or whatever, Building a career means become good at something. Focus. It's, a, it's about you. Exactly. It's about you. Invest in something that defines you. And the opportunities where I had job offers that gave me more money, then I would go back and say, does it build my career? Mm. And if the answer was no, I would not take them. Mm. Because I learned from that early age that it's either you're chasing money or you're building your career. But I've realized now when I look back, when you focus on building yourself, and that's the one where if you don't work hard for the little pay, then you never get to a point where you work less for the bigger pay. When I look back, by focusing on the career, I'm at a point where I feel I've built enough value in myself and I'm comfortable that I can offer my skills to a diverse number of industries to different situations. I can be on the board of a certain, you know, the experience I've built is useful in very many mm. situations. Mm. Yeah. So that's how I looked at it. You, you clearly have gotten lots from your parents, from your father, from your mother. What is it when you look at who you've become mm-hmm. is linked to the way you were raised? A lot. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think um, I would be who I am if it was not largely to how I was raised. And to sum it up, I believe it's about values, Um, the value of discipline, the value of hard work, the value of integrity. And all these things come at the end of the day to define who you are. I believe you cannot be two different people. (laughs) That when I go to work, I am this hard-working person. At home, I'm something else. At home, I'm something else. I, I believe you can only be one persona, and that comes through. Now, if you have two different ones, one is pretentious, the other one is real, mm. and sooner rather than later, they come 
and the true person. We see values. the truth. You can't hide it. You can't hide it. Yeah. So for me, those values, especially the value of discipline, hard work, integrity, uh, I see people who don't mind cutting a party deal to live nicely. Do you, do you see, Orlando, these yeah. values yeah. in the Kenya that you live in right now? Are those values there or you're seeing a uh, fraying of those values? Um, it's, it's interesting to ask that question because when I was doing my dissertation for my MBA, actually, my thesis was on that. Interesting. <laughs> uh, because I feel there's, a, there's an erosion of values to a large extent. It's not that everyone doesn't have values. But when you talk of corruption, what drives corruption? Yeah, yeah. It's people. Yeah. It's people who drive corruption. People say the government is corrupt. I say it's the private sector that drives corruption because largely it's the private sector that goes it's looking a player. for mm. Exactly. So if we had better values, then maybe that's where you start addressing corruption because it's really about values. Mm. Am I comfortable making so much at the expense of other people no matter what? down to what you believe. A lot of people say this is an opportunity to make big money. Mm. Others will be like, no, I, I don't want anything to do with that. And what's the difference between these two? Mm. It's the values uh, you espouse and how you perceive yourself. You, you love cooking. Is that from your parents or this is something that you've acquired as you're growing up? And why do you love cooking? Um, interesting. I saw my father cooking. Interesting. Uh, for his generation, that was something. <laughs> So clearly it comes from there. Yeah. So I guess seeing him cooking broke this uh, myth that men cannot be in the kitchen. You know, I would be in situations and you hear, ah, in our culture, as a man, you cannot be in the kitchen. And I would look at him like, okay, that's your culture. At least in my home, in our home. I my saw, father cooks. And I didn't think it diminished his uh, masculinity even one iota. Uh, my mother was also a fairly good cook, and she got us into the kitchen very early. Uh, she, uh, she got the boys into the kitchen early. Yes, because now she only had one daughter, who was the firstborn, and who was snatched away very early <laughs> at the tender age of 20. So we were left mm. behind as boys. Mm. And my mother would say, guys, do you really expect me to come from work to cook for you lunch? Mm. You need to learn how to do these mm. things. But for me, over time, it became an interest. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, one of the two things I love doing. Uh, one is really frustrating, which is golf. <laughs> uh, and cooking. What do you love cooking? What, 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 what's, what's your special thing that you like cooking? I, I think uh, steak. Okay. Uh, uh, let's just say barbecue is my speciality. Mm -hmm. uh, I love making the ribeye. Mm. I think I make the best ribeye. <laughs> But I also try different recipes. Uh, I'm actually one of those guys that try different things mm. uh, for my kids so that they get to just enjoy different cuisines. So uh, I'll follow the recipe books, but if you come and I did for you a ribeye steak, I, I think you'd pay me for it. That's okay. yeah, so what I appreciate. I'm, I'm still waiting to <laughs> test uh, your, your food. Our viewers who are all mm -hmm. over the world, uh, Orlando, love books. Mm -hmm. What books have you read that you would want to uh, recommend to our book-loving audience out there? There are many, but uh, uh, there's one I read recently. It's not a very commonly known author. It's called Porus Manshi or Munshi, mm -hmm. I think is India. Uh, it's about making breakthrough transformations happen, mm -hmm. how the Indian companies made it happen. Interesting. Uh, it's a collection of different real-life scenarios of organizations that uh, did breakthrough innovations, almost orbit-shifting kind of innovations right. to transform what they do. Uh, in that one book, I learned a lot of lessons, a lot of lessons, and I'm still trying to see how they can apply to me. Uh, another book that I read and I enjoyed was uh, Leadership Lessons from Genghis Khan. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's John Mann. Is it John Mann or Jonathan Mann? I think it's... Uh, no, no, I need to get the leadership there. lessons from, from the Genghis Khan. Yeah, mm -hmm. And uh, that one had a lot of lessons about how Genghis Khan conquered Europe. But it's not so much about the conquest, it's about the lessons from how he did it. Okay. Uh, some were a bit brutal, but still you learn something. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, I've gone to an all time classic, uh, Good to Great. Oh, wow. Jim Collins. Yes. Uh, and 
I go back to certain old books because you want to see what the issues discussed are they still relevant? Are they still relevant? Yeah. And you compare with the current situation. But I still have a stack of books. I am one of those guys. <laughs> time is my enemy, so I collect. Uh, you one, buy them, you put them aside. Yeah, and when I get time, yeah. I, uh, I read them. But I'm also partly doing audiobooks. All right. And I think one of my best is Execution. Mm-hmm. Ram Charan and... Uh, it's co-authored, Ram Charan and somebody else. Uh, execution, the art of getting things done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have it as an audiobook and I have the hard copy. So anytime I keep going back to that because life is about executing. Absolutely. Yeah. Orlando, great. I have not yet had audiobooks. I am terrible with uh, <laughs> uh, audiobooks. Um, thank you. Great, great books there, Orlando. Thank you yeah. so much, you know, for creating the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've enjoyed having you here, like I said, and, yeah. uh, you know, your, your, this conversation has has uh, is going to inspire quite a lot of people. So thank you so much uh, you. for spending the time with us. Allow me now to tend to our viewers who are all over the world who follow this show on a weekly basis. Remember, we are a weekly show. We are out every Monday at 7 a.m. Central African time on YouTube. To ensure that you don't miss out on any of these quality conversations, I invite you to click on this red button and subscribe. When and if you subscribe, you receive an alert every time we have one of these quality conversations, such as the one I've had with Orlando here. And we've gone a step further. We've created a podcast. If you scroll below this video, you'll find links to our podcast for your listening pleasure. Thank you for watching. Until next time, cheers to you all.